0: I've said many times that there's a lot of profit in old books, right? If something's been around for a very long time and people have read it for a very long time, there's probably some reason for that. And among my favorite old books is The Anabasis by Xenophon. Xenophon was a contemporary of Plato's. He studied under Socrates. Uh, and You know, if you've heard about how there was different versions of Socrates' apology, the apologia, uh, Socrates' defense and trial before he was uh, forced to drink hemlock, Plato wrote one, that's the famous one, Xenophon also wrote one. And in many different eras of history, Xenophon's been more popular than Plato. He's much less of a poet, Plato's a much better poet than Xenophon, I don't think that's controversial, Um, but he's much more practical. And he talks about things like, you know, how to ride on horseback, how to manage a household, like, like very practical things. And some of that practicality comes from the fact that he involuntarily became a soldier uh, very early in life. Uh, he was a fairly wealthy Athenian, and he went on this, this little journey that was supposed to be kind of no big deal. Um, a little bit of a big deal, a little bit of an adventurous thing for a Uh, You know, a young Athenian of, uh, you know, good family background and and had connections and whatnot. Uh, But it wound up being a a harrowing journey, and he wrote about it in Anabasis. A number of people have said this is the greatest adventure story of all time. Um, I think I agree. It's nonfiction. It happened. Uh, Obviously, the author of the book was on this expedition, so he's probably a little biased. But from what we know, it squares up pretty well with the history, and maybe he makes himself look a little better here and there. But seems to be pretty accurate. There were thousands of other people with him, so when he published his book later, it couldn't be a complete departure from the facts. So it's all, it's all pretty accurate, and it's an incredible story. And one passage, there's a number of good passages in Leadership Lessons, but one passage in there really stands out to me as the best um, among those. And, and that's what I'd like to cover today. I think you'll really enjoy this. So in the year 401 B.C., a civil war broke out in Persia. There was a, a Persian named Cyrus the Younger, not the famous Cyrus that, that founded uh, that Unified Persia and Media and, and, and really founded the Persian Empire, but named after him much later. Um, Cyrus the Younger was challenging his brother for the throne after their father died. So they're having a civil war and Cyrus went over to Greece. Greece were known, uh, the Greeks at the time were known as, as quite good fighters. Um, obviously they'd beaten the Persians a few generations earlier. 490 BC was the Battle of Marathon. The Greeks were very tough. They were one of the few to resist the Persians. And the Greeks had just ended the Peloponnesian War when Athens and Sparta and really all of Greece were were battling each other a lot. That was 431 to 404. So there's a bunch of really battle-hardened, excellent Greek soldiers that are now at peace and have nothing to do. Um, So Cyrus the Younger rocks up and says, hey, I got a lot of gold and power and... Uh, I want to take over Persia, and then a little be even more golden power. Happy to reward you folks. And he put together a uh, a mixed body of a little bit of Persian cavalry and a lot of Greek soldiers. They called them the 10,000 Greeks. It was probably something like 13,000. And these were from all sorts of different places. There was Athenians. There were Spartans. They were under a Spartan commander named Clearchus. Uh, there was uh, Boeotians and Thebans and kind of fun and if you actually dig into the history a little bit which I didn't know in my first reading of the book, um, there, there's actually a little tiny bit of humor of like how the Spartans and Athenians interact with each other that you might not might not pick up on if you didn't if you didn't know a little bit about the era of the speech patterns it's it's kind of clever it's kind of fun. So the Greeks invade along with the yeah usurper his brother was legitimately in power. Cyrus the younger was the usurper in this case going to fight his brother brings a bunch of Greeks a few Persians with him fair amount of Persian, Persian cavalry. And uh, they, they invade Persia, and they do pretty well. I mean, they're winning battles. The Greek soldiers of this era are better than the Persian soldiers of this era. Um, this is quite a ways after the, the height of the, the really great Persian leaders, uh, Cyrus and, and Darius. Um, it's quite a bit later. Persians, Persians aren't the old Median Persians that were super tough. Um, and the Greeks had just just ended uh, you know, 25, 30 years of war, they're all battle-hardened. And uh, so they go invade, and they're, and they're winning all their battles. But then what happens is Cyrus the Younger gets this, like, I'm going to be a big, bold hero. And he goes and charges after his brother in battle, even though his, his troops are winning. They're winning all the battles they're fighting. But he goes and, and kind of does this desperate hero charge and gets taken out um, and dies. Uh, his brother's bodyguards cut Cyrus the Younger down. So the Greeks are stranded in Persia. And their, their whole uh, reason for being there, that Cyrus the Younger was going to take over the throne from his brother. And he's like a much better guy and, you know, deserves it. And he's, he's lovely and his brother's a tyrant, you know, standard story. But the brother is dead. So they really, you know, the Greeks aren't going to take over Persia by themselves. And the Persians are like, okay, uh, you lost your guy. Uh, surrender now. And maybe we'll be merciful. The Greeks are like, well, no. No, uh, we don't think we're going to do that. Uh, now we think we're gonna fight you so they start they have a little battle and they beat the Persians again and the Persians are like okay, okay, okay You know what? You're surrounded. You're really really deep in Persia. You're like way far away from Greece. We'll just let you leave How about that? We'll let you leave You know, we don't need to take crazy losses fighting all of you folks. You're really good soldiers We're just gonna let you leave and you know what? You brought some gold and stuff with you. We'll sell you supplies on the way out. We'll sell you food whatever you want. You don't mess with us, we don't mess with you. We'll send an escort with you. We'll take you back to Greece. Fair enough. You fought for the losing guy, but you are honorable soldiers. We'll just let you leave Persia. We'll sell you stuff along the way. Just leave. Don't fight us. We don't fight you. We could take you out. Maybe we'd lose 5 or 10 guys per Greek we took out, but you know, we don't want to do that. You don't want to die. We could we could kill you. You're deep in Persia. There's a lot of us. Just leave we'll let you leave, we'll sell you stuff, we'll make a little money, you'll get some supplies, you get to go home, good deal, right? The Greeks talk and talk and talk, and they're like, yeah, you know, we are kind of in the middle of Persia, this is, this is, this is not good, okay, so they take the deal, and they start to just kind of orderly go out, and the Greeks are kind of complaining the Persians are charging too high of prices for the food and supplies and whatever, but, you know, it's kind of orderly, and, you know, gradually the, 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 Persian guard is marching alongside them, and, and they start chatting, and they start getting along. It's like, it's like fine, they're, they're soldiers, they get along with each other, they understand each other well enough. It's, you know, it's almost cordial. A little grousing about the high prices, but you know, it's like, it's fine. So, you know, eventually, the, the Persian governor, his name is Tissaphernes. Um, he was like kind of one of the main, main actors, the kind of uh, right-hand man of the Persian king at that point in time, He becomes the major antagonist of the story. Eventually says to the Greeks, hey, why don't we have a banquet? Why don't we have a little party together? You know, we'll tell you some useful information. You know, we can hang out and make sure everything's going well and, you know, do that. And the Greek leader, Clearchus, he's a Spartan, very interesting character. He's he's really tough, but he's got this kind of devil-may-care attitude. He really trusts his intuition. And he's like, all right, yep, let's do the banquet. Uh, and, and to the first, like, great, yeah, bring all your generals, all your captains, bring all your best people, give them the best Persian, everything. Persian wine, Persian meat, you guys have been complaining about the high prices, I'll just pay for everything, we'll have a great banquet, we'll have, like, really Persian delicacies, it'll be lovely. And is like, all right, cool, let's do it. And everyone's like, all right, and let's quote Xenophon, some of the soldiers protested of going to the banquet, that's the first. The captains and generals had better not all go. It was better not to put too much confidence in Tissaphernes. But Clearchus insisted so strongly that finally it was arranged for five generals to go and twenty captains. These were accompanied by about two hundred of the other soldiers who took the opportunity of marketing, buying and selling supplies from the Persians. They complained the prices were high, but the Persians sold them stuff. On arrival at the doors of Tissaphernes's quarters, the generals were summoned inside. They were Proxenus, the Boetian, Menon, the Thessalian, Agius, the Arcadian, Clearchus, the Spartan, and Socrates, the Achaean, not the famous Socrates, it was a fairly common name, while the captains remained at the doors. Not long after that, at one and the same signal, those within were seized and those without cut down, after which some of the barbarian horsemen galloped over the plain, killing every Greek they encountered, free or slave. The Greeks, as they looked from the camp, viewed that strange horsemanship with surprise and could not explain to themselves what it all meant, until Nicarchus, the Arcadian, came tearing along for bare life with a wound in the belly and clutching his protruding entrails in his hands. He told them all what had happened. Instantly, the Greeks ran to their arms, one and all, in utter consternation and fully expecting that the enemy would instantly be down upon the camp. However... They did not all come immediately. All right, so whole Greek leadership just got taken out, right? The top the top five generals, and these were all like, you know, the Spartans served other Spartans and the Thebans served other Thebans, so they just lost all of their generals and a lot of their, their top people, their captains. So they just lost most of their leadership, and then the 200 people that went with them were probably, like, getting favors to, like, hey, okay, you can come along this super banquet and whatever. So they are probably some of, like, the trusted confidants and aide-de-camps and things like that. So they just lost a lot of their crew, Um, and they expected the person to be upon them immediately when they didn't have any officers, but they didn't come. Instead, they sent an envoy and said, oh, well, you know. Yeah, well, we just kind of betrayed and captured your guy, but it, yeah, you know, we didn't really mean it. Why don't you just surrender again, and you know, we'll, we'll keep the peace treaty? And the Greeks are like, no, 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 we're not falling for this. No, 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 no. no. So the Persians are like, well, I'll have it your way. See you soon. And their Persian allies, the the few Persian cavalry that have been on Cyrus's side, they're like, uh, yeah, this is this is ugly, and they just they just rode off, they just left, <laughs> right. So now the Greeks are by themselves. They have no cavalry. All of their generals are dead. Their captains are dead. A lot of their messengers, aides, like a lot of the most important Greek leadership all just got taken out at this banquet. Don't go to banquets, by the way, in the ancient world is the, the lesson. It just repeats over and over and over again. Don't go to banquet. If you do, don't bring everybody, but they did. And so there you go. And this, this, this next scene that's described by Xenophon when he describes what happens, and then you get to meet him for the first time in the book, and I'll tell you about that in a second because it's fascinating. But this next scene, I think, sets the, the stage really well for what comes after them, It's really an incredible story. After the generals had been seized and the captains and soldiers who formed their escort had been killed, the Greeks lay in deep perplexity, a prey to painful reflections. Here were they at the king's gates, and on every side around them were hostile cities and tribes of men. Who was there now to furnish them with a market and sell them supplies? Separated from Greece by more than a thousand miles, they had not even a guide to point the way. Impassable rivers lay thwarting their homeward route, and hemmed them in. Betrayed even by their Persian allies, at whose side they had marched with Cyrus to the attack, they were left in isolation. Without a single mounted trooper to aid them in pursuit, was it not perfectly plain that if they won a battle, their enemies would escape to a man? But if they were beaten themselves, not one soul of them would survive? Haunted by such thoughts, and with hearts full of despair, but few of them tasted food that evening, but few of them kindled even a fire, And many never came into camp at all that night, but took their rest where each chanced to be. They could not close their eyes, for very pain and yearning after their fatherlands or their parents, the wife or child whom they never expected to look upon again. Such was the plight, in which each and all tried to seek repose. Now there was in that host a certain man, an Athenian, Xenophon who had accompanied Cyrus, neither as a general, nor as an officer, nor yet as a private soldier, but simply on the invitation of an old friend, Proximus. Two things there. First off, there are not many examples in history of a side that was totally beaten and about to get taken out that survived. So this is a very interesting historical document, right? Think about it. Like, there's still 10,000-something pretty good soldiers, and they lost their leadership, And they just broke down. People are like, just kind of like, I guess this is it. I guess I'm never going to see my mother, my father, my wife, my children ever again. I guess this is the end. Some of them, many of them didn't eat. They didn't start a fire. They didn't do the standard take care of yourself at night, you know, stuff. Some of them just like, I'm just going to lie down and just wait to die. Nothing, right? So that's really interesting to read that because we don't get many accounts like that coming down to us in history when people are just totally broken and giving up which is what they were. They were giving up, right? And then this line, now there was in that host a certain man, an Athenian, Xenophon. I love that, all right? So the first two books of Anabasis, it's like six books, something like that. First two books does not mention Xenophon once. It's all in third person. This is a convention for the era. So Xenophon writes about himself in the third person. So he doesn't say I. He says Xenophon does this, Xenophon does that. It's written in third person. But the first two books, he doesn't even show up. In the first two books, Clearchus is leading; he's doing his thing. Cyrus the Younger is making speeches. They're fighting battles, and you know Xenophon's just tagging along. He's like twenty-ish uh, years old at the time, and he just got invited by one of his friends, Proxenus, who's like, "Hey, you want to like go on this like civil war thing?" And yeah, I guess people just did that back then. You know, it's like, okay, let's go. I'll, sure, I'll go along and observe, right? You know, there's there's ten thousand people. Having another five or six Athenian nobles in the camp is like. Not a big deal, Um, so he was invited along, and it gives us introduction. You haven't seen this 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 guy at all. So Xenophon writes a little flashback and talks about how he went to Socrates and says, "Hey, I want to go on this expedition," and does all sorts of things. And eventually, you know, Socrates was kind of like against it, but Xenophon talks his way into doing it and goes along with Proxenus and Clearchus and the whole group, Cyrus. And now Xenophon is like coming to the forefront. So he did not matter in the initial part of this campaign. And had it gone as planned, had they won. Or had the officers not gotten taken out, Xenophon might not have ro- risen to prominence. He's in his early 20s, maybe late teens, but I think probably early 20s um, at this point. So he's, he's you know, a, a young guy. Um, you know, he's he's got some experience, you know, in the uh, soldiering life a tiny little bit. He can march a little bit. He's been around these Greek troops. He You know, he, he grew up during the Peloponnesian War, so he got to, you know, he would have known many soldiers. It was a very uh, soldiering and, and warring time. Um, but he's just a young guy, a scholar, that was studying with, with Socrates and, and was not, not really a soldier at this point. He was an observer that went along with this group for the heck of it because it seemed like fun. So Xenophon's introduced right now at the start of Book 3. First two books, he didn't even show up. Um, and here he comes. And so then he writes this. And this is one of my favorite things in, in, in all of historical writing. And now in this season of perplexity, he too, Xenophon, with the rest, was in sore distress and could, not, and could not sleep. But then, getting a snatch of sleep, he had a dream. It seemed to him in a vision that there was a storm of thunder and lightning, and a bolt fell on his father's house, and thereupon the house was all in a blaze. He sprung up in a terror, and pondering the matter, decided that in part the dream was good, and that he had seen a great light from Zeus— while in the midst of toil and danger. But partly, too, he feared it, for evidently it had come from Zeus the king. And the fire kindled all around. What could that mean? But that he was hemmed in by various perplexities, and so could not escape from the country of the Persian king. The full meaning, however, is to be discovered from what happened after the dream. Did he actually have that dream? Who knows? Um, Could be a little propaganda, you know, could be a little, like, Somewhat presumptuous of a young guy to do what he's about to do, so maybe he wrote that in later. It was like, well, I was blessed by Zeus to do it. You know, People back then had their, their certain views. Did he actually have a, like a nightmare where his dad's house is on fire? Maybe. Could have been. But sets the stage for it. The full meaning, however, is to be discovered from what happened after the dream. This is what took place. As soon as Xenophon was fully awake, the first thought which came into his head was, why am i lying here the night advances with the day it is like enough the enemy will be upon us if we were to fall into the hands of the king what is left us but to face the most horrible of sights and to suffer the most fearful of pains and then to die insulted and ignominious death to defend ourselves to ward off that fate Not a hand stirs. No one is preparing. None cares. But here we lie as though it were time to rest and take our ease. I too. What am I waiting for? A general to undertake the work? And from what city? Am I waiting till I am older myself and of riper age? Older I shall never be. If today I betray myself to my enemies. Ah, so no one's doing anything. And Xenophon's like, he wakes up after this, this nightmare, which maybe he had, maybe he didn't. Why am I lying? As soon as he was fully awake, the first clear thought which came into his head was, why am I lying here, <laughs> right? So he just kind of snaps into reality. And he's like, what am I waiting for? Somebody to tell me what to do? Like, there's nobody telling me what to do. Where are they going to come from? Am I waiting because I'm not older or experienced enough? I'm not going to be any older <laughs> if I don't get it together. And then this is what happens, right? Older I shall never be if today I betray myself to my enemies. Thereupon he got up and called together first Proxenus's officers, and when they were met, he said, sleep, sirs, I cannot, nor can you, I fancy, nor lie here longer when I see in what straits we are. Our enemy, we may be sure, did not open war upon us till he felt he had everything amply ready, yet none of us shows a corresponding anxiety to enter the lists of battle in the bravest style, and yet, If we yield ourselves and fall into the king's power, need we ask what our fate will be? This man who, when his own brother, the son of the same parents, was dead, was not content with that, but severed head and hand from the body and nailed them to a cross. We then, who have not even a tie of blood in our favor, but who marched against him, meaning to make him a slave instead of a king, and to slay him if we could, what is likely to be our fate at his hands? Will he not go all lengths so that, By inflicting on us the most extreme of ignominy and torture, he may rouse in the rest of mankind a terror of ever marching against him anymore? There is no question but that our business is to avoid by all means getting into his clutches. For my part, all the while the truce lasted, I never ceased pitying ourselves and congratulating the king and those with him. As, like a helpless spectator, I surveyed the extent and quality of their territory, the plenteousness of their provisions, the multitude of their dependents, their cattle, their gold, and their apparel. And then to turn and ponder the condition of our soldiers. Without part or lot in these good things, except when we bought it, few I knew, had any longer the wherewithal to buy, and yet our oath held us down, thing is the peace treaty, so that we could not provide otherwise for ourselves than by purchase. I say as I reason thus, there were times when I dreaded the truce more than I now dread war. Now, however, They have abruptly ended the truce. There is an end also to our insolence and to our suspicion. All these good things of theirs are now set as prizes for the combatants. To whichsoever of us shall prove the better men, will they fall as blessings. And the gods themselves are the judges of the strife. The gods who will surely be on our side, seeing as our enemies have taken their names falsely, whilst we, with much to lure us, yet for our oath's sake and the gods who are our witnesses, sternly held aloof. So it seems to me we have a right to enter upon this contest with much more heart than our foes. And further, we are possessed of bodies more capable than theirs of bearing cold and heat and labor. Souls too have we, by the help of heaven, better and braver. Nay, the men themselves are more vulnerable, more mortal than ourselves. If so be the gods of vouchsafe to give us victory once again. How be it, for I doubt not elsewhere similar reflections are being made. Let us not in heaven's name wait for others to come and challenge us to noble deeds. Let us rather take the lead in stimulating the rest to valor. Show yourselves to be the bravest of officers and among generals the worthiest to command. For myself, if you choose to start forwards on this quest, I will follow. Or if you bid me lead, you... If you bid me lead you, my age shall be no excuse to stand between me and your orders. And so they went for it. Isn't that incredible? I'm sure the speech is dressed up a little bit. I'm sure he wasn't that uh, coherent. I'm sure he didn't give a nonstop lofty oration. But I I bet that's close enough to what he said because he did get elected one of the, the leaders um it, it fell to a young generation that was not so battle-hardened to lead because everybody older had been taken out um that was in a leadership role and really quite incredible xenophon is like hey nobody's doing anything this is really bad um we are seriously gonna be in a bad place uh if we don't do something i mean this this uh, the, the king you know we yeah, we yeah we tried to make him a slave to his brother and or kill him and uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't be so happy if, uh, if someone did that to me and uh, after his brother died he was you know mutilating his brother's body and uh, we're not we're not even related to him they he would like to make a bad example out of us all right fair enough everybody's like yeah, yeah that's true I don't know. it's got to be got to be a little bit afraid of that but then he's like but wait a second these Persians are rich and we're poor. So, we're seeing it as kind of like a bad thing that we're like surrounded and, and we don't got much going on. But now we look on the bright side. They got all this loot. We can go take it, right? And I love that line. You know, they've got their, you know, the plenteousness of their provisions, the multitude of their dependents, their cattle, their gold, and their apparel. Yeah, let's. So, the, the, uh, the Persians were, were famous for having these just beautiful uh, dyed cloaks and 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 saddles and stuff for for like ages like the 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 persians were very stylish so they're like hey we've seen how nice their clothing is let's kill them and take it right so he turns from like yeah we're gonna get tortured to death and it's gonna be terrible to like but look at their loot (laughs) you know and 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 they're dishonest we kept our word Right, And they they swore oaths on their gods, and they swore they would be honest and just, and they broke their oaths, so God's with us. And and didn't we already win a few fights against them? So let's go take their clothing and their cattle from them and their gold. And, you know, hey, for my part, somebody else wants to be in charge. That's cool. I'll roll, but you want me to be in charge? I'll do it. I'll do it. I won't hold... You know, I won't. I won't be held back by my age. If I'm uh if you think I'm the best among you, uh, let's roll. And uh, that's what kicked off one of the greatest adventure stories of all times. The Greeks fought and fought and fought and fought to get out of Persia. And it's a heck of a leadership story. It's a heck of a story about improvisation and learning from mistakes and human nature. It's really interesting. They pass through a lot of different uh, Persian territory, and there's like raiding and counter- raiding, and it's, it's just a great book, *Anabasis* by Xenophon. It's It's out of print. Um, I'm reading from a Victorian-era translation of it. You can find one on Gutenberg, um, or there's a bunch of copies on Amazon. I I like reading the Victorian-era translations of things. But, you know, Xenophon's fine speech of, like, yeah, this is going to be really bad if we lose, and, hey, it might be great if we win, and we're in the right here. Actually, that's pretty interesting. The whole book is interesting. But that line, the the one that really stands out to me, you know, talks about just like everyone gave up they're just like uh we're screwed people just like don't eat don't make a fire some of them don't even like make their 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 bed roll out they just like lie down and just kind of wait to die despondently there's ten thousand people there nobody's doing anything right they're just like oh i guess we're gonna lose and xenophon lies down and then like kind of falls asleep maybe has that nightmare or maybe it's later propaganda and then this this thought comes into his head you know this is what took place. As soon as he was fully awake, the first clear thought which came to his head was, why am I lying here? I I love that. And I feel like that's a moment that, I don't know if everybody will have moments like that across their lives, but a lot of people will, right? A lot of people will when just everything is confused. And this might be something very small. This might be like your professor doesn't show up to an undergraduate class and everyone's just kind of sitting around confused. Where's the professor? And you know, either nothing will happen or someone will get up to the front of the class and be like, Hey, the professor's not here. Let's have a good time. Let's try to talk about the subject matter. Let's, let's do some math or history or whatever, right? These, these little moments when the expected leadership is not there, right? And everyone's just kind of looking around or doing nothing or just, just kind of staring off into space. Um, some people step up in those moments and, and, seeing the description of literally hundreds to thousands of people just despondent and then one young guy who's, you know, studied philosophy with one of the, one of the greats, Socrates, and was from a, uh, you know, country that had a, a, a tradition where they they you know, won the Peloponnesian War recently. Um, how did they lose the Peloponnesian War? I, I would have to double check. How did that end in the end? Was that Lysander won? So maybe the Athenians lost. Either way, they won a lot before they lost if they did. Um, But yeah, you know, so he had a transition, a tradition. They're proud of Athens. Um, He was was pretty learned, but was not at all ready for the task. But nobody was, right? They just lost a couple hundred of their most senior and connected people. And he just lies down. Nobody's doing anything. And, you know, Dozes off to sleep. Maybe has a nightmare. Maybe that's an invention later um, to make the story more palatable to people. When he's back in Greece, they did survive. They got out. That's why we have the book. It's an incredible story. And this line just always always stands out to me. And, it, and everybody that reads the book, this stands out to, and they wind up just talking about it. We we kind of quote quote this at each other from time to time to get going. But such a lovely line. This is what took place. As soon as he was fully awake, the first clear thought which came into his head was. Why am I lying here? The night advances. With the day, it is like enough, the enemy will be upon us. If we are to fall into the hands of the king, what is left us but to face the most horrible of sights and to suffer the most fearful pains and then to die, insulted and ignominious death, to defend ourselves, to ward off that fate? Not a hand stirs. No one is preparing. None cares. But here we lie as though it were time to rest and take our ease. I too. What am I waiting for? A general to undertake the work? And from what city? Am I waiting till I am older myself and of riper age? Older I shall never be if today I betray myself to my enemies. And that's a wrap on this edition of the Ultra Working Podcast. Good to be with you. Stay strong. Why am I lying here? Older I shall never be if today I betray myself to my enemies. Stay strong. Be well. Sebastian Marshall, signing out. Godspeed.